For those of you who are new here or have missed a couple of Sundays or have been in a cave for the last month, uh, I've been doing a series, and today will be the last one in the series, but I've been doing a series on grace. And certainly we have not, in this four-week series, uh, because this is part four, we have not covered nearly everything there is to say from the Bible about grace. Not even close. Um, and, but we could just keep going on and on, and we'll just stop it here. It's wonderful that we didn't finish because it means we can just keep coming back to grace. And we'll have more series about grace and more messages on grace. Um, but so far, I, you know, I don't have time to catch you all up. And time is short. I can't ca- catch you up on everything we've talked about in this series. But we've been bouncing back and forth through this whole month. We've been ba- bouncing back and forth between what grace is and what grace isn't, right? And, uh, and some of the things, just very briefly, that we've covered, we've talked about the fact last week that uh, forgiveness is free. You don't have to work up forgiveness. You start with forgiveness, and then from there you pursue a relationship. But you, forgiveness is free. It starts with forgiveness. But if your faith is real, if your salvation is real, and if your belief is real, out of that forgiveness is going to come some good works and some good fruit. Amen? And we've also talked throughout this series on what the grace walk and the grace life looks like. The fact that God is not mad at people who fail and fail and fail and fail as we all do so long as you are in the pursuit of of holiness and a relationship with him. As long as you're in that pursuit, you can fail hundreds of times and he forgives you. But the moment you come out of that pursuit and you take the gra- his grace for granted and you presume upon his kindness, that's where God is now opposing you, right? And so we've been talking about all these things. Now, today we're going to finish off this series. And I uh, honestly believe that some of the stuff I'm going to say today, especially right at the very end, the last point in this message, I think it's some of the most important stuff I've ever talked about in a message and, and probably the most important stuff I ever could talk about. We're going to talk about uh, salvation. All right, and, and the reason we're going to talk about salvation, we're in a series on grace, and grace and salvation are tied together, right? Every Christian, uh, how many times have we all heard this phrase or used this phrase, uh, we hear people say, I've been saved by grace, right? I've been saved by grace. And it's a wonderful, true statement. But the only problem is that I find is that uh, many Christians today actually have no idea what it means. What have we been saved from, right? What have we been saved from? Furthermore, when are we saved? Is salvation something that happened to me in the past already when I asked Jesus into my heart? Or is it something that's going on right now? Or is it something that's going to be completed in the future? We need to know what the Bible says about these things because the fact of the matter is that many of us have no idea. And so there's a lot of confusion about what is grace because what has grace saved me from? How has grace uh, saved me? And so uh, three parts of this message. In the first part, I want to talk about what has grace saved us from? And then in the middle, we're going to do a little practical. I'm going to give you three practical steps that just come out of this whole series. What do we do about this series, about grace? And then in the last point is where I want to talk about something absolutely vitally important because uh, how, when you view, how, how you view salvation and when a person is saved, if it's something that happened in the fut- past or if it's something that's going to happen in the future, what the Bible says about that is going to impact everything in your life about how you view your salvation and walk with Jesus. And so we'll have to look at that right at the end of this message. But we're going to start with point number one, which is, what is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? And what are we saved from? And uh, like I said before, most Christians don't really know. We never actually stop to think about it. But if we do stop to think about it, and if I ask most Christians, what have we been saved from? Most of us would eventually come up with an answer like, we've been saved from hell, right? We've been saved from hell. Now, that is a very true answer. Yes, that is 
uh, a big thing that Jesus has saved us from. But here's the thing that you need to realize today and that I want to make, I want to really emphasize this in the first part of this message is that uh, hell, being saved from hell is simply the byproduct of you being saved from something else. See, we are completely focused on being saved from hell. We don't realize that hell is the effect. There's a cause. Sin is the cause. Hell is the effect. And Jesus didn't just come to leave us in our sins and then mask the effect of those sins. When Jesus came to save us, he came to save us from the cause. And as a result of being saved from the cause, you're also saved from the effect. When you get saved from sin, you're also saved from hell. It's really good to be saved from hell. It's even better to be saved from sin. See, from our point of view, human's point of view, we see hell as the problem. When God looks at the universe and at people, he does not see hell as the problem. He sees sin as the problem. When God looks at his universe, his good creation, his human beings that he made in his image, he does not see hell as the problem. He just had to make hell because he had to have somewhere to put people who would persist in their sins. But God sees sin in his good creation. That to him is like a mother whose, whose child has some kind of a disease. And that mother hates that disease because it's killing her child. And that's how God views the universe and sin. So Jesus did not come to save us from hell. That is a happy byproduct. He came to save us from the disease, which is sin. And I want to prove it to you. Matthew chapter 1 is the first chapter in the New Testament. And... Uh, and in the first chapter, what's happening there is Joseph wants to uh, divorce Mary quietly because she got pregnant. That's scandalous. He's not the one that got her pregnant. He doesn't believe her when she says, I haven't had sex with anyone, right? And so he's going to divorce her quietly because, I mean, virgin birth. It's only happened once, right? And, uh, and so anyway, he's going to divorce her quietly. And then the angel comes to him, probably the angel Gabriel, but the passage doesn't tell us. And Gabriel comes to him in the night and says, don't divorce her. She is pregnant with Jesus. And then the angel gives a very important piece of information. He gives Jesus' life mission. All right? And let's read it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Here it is. But as he, that's Joseph, considered these things, that's getting divorced, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He does not say, this is Jesus' primary person. Okay, again, remember this. This is his purpose. This is his main assignment. There's some other little things that he did, but this is the whole reason he came the first time. And by the way, a lot of people also get mixed up on this. This is only the reason he came the first time. The second time he's coming back is not for this. The second time he comes back is to judge people for sin and conquer and rule the world. But the first time he came, the angel says, this is the whole reason why he's coming. He's coming to save us from our sins. And the reason I'm emphasizing this right now is because of what he does not say. He does not say that he, the angel does not say that Jesus came to save us from hell. He came to save us from our sins because sin is the problem, not hell. And the reason this is important is because in our day and age today of false grace and cheap grace and bad teaching about grace, we have focused so much on the being saved from hell to the exclusion of the being saved from the cause that it has actually gotten into a lot of people's minds the fact that you can continue to live in your sins and be saved because salvation doesn't have to do with coming out of sin. It has to do with being saved from hell. 
And that is not true. In fact, I want to tell you something else. I'll show you a passage in just a moment. In fact, it is not true. Jesus did not, will not, and cannot save you from the effect if he doesn't save you from the cause. If you persist in the cause, you cannot be saved from the effect. Let me show you. Hebrews 10, 26, 31. There's many passages about this, okay? I'll just read you one. Yes, I read this passage about a month and a half ago during Palm uh, Weekend. I'm going to read it again because this passage gets vast underexposure in the church today, okay? People don't talk about this verse, but it's an important verse. All, the entire Bible is very important. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, right? So if I persist in the cause, I got saved, I got the knowledge of the truth, I became a Christian, but I'm now deliberately persisting in the cause, thinking that I'm saved from the effect. I want you to see what happens. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In in other words, not saved from the cause, not saved from the effect. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Not talking about unbelievers here. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'm not going to spend much time there preaching on that passage before. The point is, you're not saved from the cause, you're not saved from the effect. Jesus came to save us from the cause, and if you let him save you from the cause, you're also saved from the effect, happily. Now again, this is extremely, extremely important because we have to change the focus of our Christian lives. The focus of the Christian life is not, I got saved from a place in the future, it's that I got saved from a lifestyle in the present. That's the focus of the Christian life. The focus of the Christian life, let me say it again, is not that you and I got saved from a place, hell, in the future. It's that you got saved from a lifestyle in the present. You got saved out of being bitter, unforgiving, worldly, selfish, self-centered, proud, rebellious. You always want your own way. Dirty mind, dirty talk. You got saved out of that hideous, horrible, old way of living. You got saved into a new way of living, the kind of living that can't go on in hell. You got saved into being a selfless person who puts others first. You got saved into being a humble, submissive person who's glad to say yes to their boss and to all the authorities. You got saved out of being greedy. You got saved into being generous. You got saved into being a servant instead of arrogant. You got saved into, you used to be harsh. If someone was harsh to you, you were harsh to them. If they gossiped to you about you, you gossiped to, to, about them. That was the old way of life. Guess what? You got saved out of that to be a person who is kind when others are harsh. If that doesn't sound uh, appealing to you, then what that really means is that salvation isn't appealing to you. Because that's what salvation is. Salvation is not, I continue to be unforgiving, I continue to be bitter, I continue to to give back harm for harm, I continue to be dishonest, I continue to be my own boss, and thank God I'm safe from hell. No, no. That is what hell is for. Those things. And so Jesus came to save us from our sins. 
And if being saved from your sins isn't appealing to you, salvation isn't appealing to you. And if you think of yourself as saved, maybe you're not saved or you're in a very bad, dark place with God. Because Jesus came to save us out of that. That's why Paul describes salvation this way. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if... I want you to notice the if. There are all kinds of ifs in the Bible. And we just... We can't even see them. We've got this set of glasses on that takes every promise as if it's 100% sure for me, even if I don't respond to it. But there are ifs all over the Bible. I, I just feel a message coming out. I want to preach a whole series sometime called If, okay? Maybe this summer I'll preach a series called If. You're going to see more in this message, right? But therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is actually saved, if anyone is actually a believer... Then what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are actually saved, you can't be the same. Because that's, it's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. You can't be saved and be the same because being saved means you are becoming a new creation. You have new desires New ways of speaking, new ways of acting and behaving. You are a new creation. That's what Paul says. But you know what we've done? We've actually done a dangerous thing. We've done it with lots of scriptures. But this is a famous passage. Every Christian knows about this passage, or most Christians do. The problem that we've done with this passage is we've taken it and taken it from being a real thing to being a theoretical thing. And this is how we've done it. We've turned this passage into, we've made it automatic and theoretical. And here's how we've done that. We've made it automatic. We take this passage and we tell everyone who says they're a Christian, we tell everyone who's ever prayed a prayer to receive Christ in their heart, we tell them, you're a new creation, even if they're not new. We just, we just automatically apply it to anyone who thinks they're, they're a Christian. And by doing that, that new creation part actually becomes theoretical because a lot of people just plain aren't new. I mean, George Barna, okay? George Barna, many of you have heard that name. He's written many, many books. He's a Christian researcher. He's respected by Christians and non-Christians alike. And in the 1990s, and again in 2006, but he conducted thousands of surveys, he, he became burdened about this question. And he wanted to find out in the real world with real numbers, with real people, he wanted to find out, are, are born-again believers actually any different than unbelievers? That's what he wanted to find. Is that a good question? That's a good question. So he did a survey, 1,000, 1,000 people. Uh, did it in the United States, okay? I say that because I'm, I'm sure it's not the same here in Canada. We're way, way ahead spiritually, right, I think? Um, of course, no. Um, but he, said he did this survey. He was shocked with the results. He wrote a whole book. It's called The Second Coming of the Church. I should just give a little disclaimer here. I do not agree with all the things he thinks are solutions to the problem. But the statistics, the problem is fascinating. He did thousands of surveys. He wanted to compare behaviors between people who thought of themselves as born again. Born again means a new person. And people who are just total unbelievers. And that's what he found. There was almost no difference here in North America. The divorce rate between people who consider themselves to be born again and people who are total unbelievers, identical. The rate of people who watched, had watched dirty movies in the previous month or week, I forget what it was, but in the previous short amount of time, was pretty much 
identical. The rate of people getting back evil for evil was just about equal. The rate of people being in bad debt, they were out of control and unwise with their finances and they were in bad debt, equal. The rate of people engaging in gossip and slander, equal. All the way down the list, all kinds of behaviors, equal, 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 equal. That is stunning and that is shocking. Because then we all come into church and we take this verse and we go, oh, thank God we're all new creations. And so then I ask the question, well, if you're a new creation and you aren't new in your behavior, what does it mean? Well, hmm, must be a spiritual thing, right? And we theoreticalize the word. Here's the thing. If salvation is real, then the new creation thing will be real. If the new creation is theoretical, so is your salvation. I mean, God's saving power, is it real or is it theoretical? When Paul says that you're going to be a new creation, if anyone is in Christ, he is actually going to be a new creation. You're not a new creation unless you're a new creation. If you are just living the exact same life you always did and always have, you're not a new creation. And being saved means you have become a new creation. There are many passages on this. Again, saving power is real. It's a real transaction. And there's many passages on this. Let me go to 1 John again. I've read you many passages from 1 John in this message series. And I love 1 John because over and over and over again, he comes back to the same truths and he hammers this thing of theoretical versus real. And he just hammers it over and over and over again. That's why I love the book and that's why many people in the Christian church today stay away from it. 1 John 1, or 1 John 2, 28 to 29. And now little children abide in him, that's in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, now just follow along with me here, you may be sure that everyone who is theoretically righteous in Christ, is that what he says? No! You may be sure that everyone who is in theory, who says, who has a little mantra on their mirror, I'm righteous in Christ, no. He says, you may be sure that everyone who actually practices righteousness in the real world. Salvation is real and it makes a real difference. If it hasn't made a real difference, it's not real. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, has been born again. I mean, that's what it means to be born again. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? You must be born again. Nicodemus says, how do I climb back up into the womb? And Jesus says, it's actually harder than that. You have to become a brand new person by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to be born again. So if you're the same old person that you always were or that you would be if you weren't saved, if there's no supernatural explanation for the character in your life, are you saved? There has to be a supernatural explanation. I'm not talking about miracles and signs and wonders. I'm talking about Christian character. People have to look at us and say, what is going on in that person's life? They're only kind even when people are bad to them. They have got integrity that doesn't, it's just crazy. They are so honest and truthful. They are so gentle. They are so loving. There has to be a supernatural explanation. That's what being saved is. Real power came into your life and you went from being this person to being this person. And of course, there's a journey in there. And nobody's perfect. But if you are actually a new creation, you're going to feel bad every time the old self comes out. It's one of the signs you're, you're a Christian. If you're the old creation, the old creation doesn't matter. 
I love being worldly. I love being apathetic. And you're just barreling through life, full of pleasure and full of sin. There's maybe a nagging sense of anxiety having to do with death and Jesus coming back. But there's no remorse for your sin. When you're becoming a new creation, you hate that way of living. So you're repenting and confessing of it. Now, the Apostle Paul actually prophesied the current state of the Western church in the Bible. Did you know that? I love this. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 5. He made a prophecy that exactly pegs the North American church today in the last days. And I want to just read it to you. This is astonishing, okay? But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Is this sounding familiar to anyone yet? Yeah, don't we wish, yeah, nobody's laughing in this service. Maybe this one's hitting a little too close to home. Lovers of self, lovers of money. We wish, oh, Paul, start with the bad ones. You know, start with murder and adultery. Lovers of self, lovers of money, that's okay. You can be a Christian and be that. Okay. This is Paul. Remember, this is Paul, not me. Okay. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's rampant. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that not capture our society right now? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. They've got a Christian title. They go to church. Their neighbors don't go to church. Their neighbors don't believe in God. They believe in God. They go to church. The rest of the week, the two lives look exactly the same. They have a fish on the trunk of their car, even. <laughs> right? Appearance of godliness, but denying its power. There's nothing real. They have a God, a theoretical salvation that makes no difference in their life. And then he says, avoid such people. Now, there's a dangerous thing that we've done, because I've been reading you a lot of passages in this series, and some of you, I've even had this comment. Some of you are going, I didn't know that was in the Bible, and I've been showing you lots of scriptures. And people who have been reading their Bibles all their lives are going, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And I'm like, how did you miss that? It was like a whole chapter there. It was a whole book there. And I'll tell you what we've done. This is why we're missing these passages. They're all over the place. Passages like this. Passages of judgment, holiness, get right with God. I'll tell you why we don't, don't read them. We miss them subconsciously because we have a subconscious set of blinders on our eyes. And instead of reading the Bible to find out what the Bible says and then believing what it says, we have beliefs and then we read the Bible and find those beliefs. And so what we tend to do in, in North America right now is, is anything that speaks about judgment or it sounds a little bit harsh, our subconscious just weeds that out and you know how it does it? We just think to ourselves, well, that's not for us. I mean, this passage was written for unbelievers, obviously. Who? God, Christians wouldn't be like this, Right? So we read, this is unbelievers, this is Pharisees. So I just want to prove to you something here, that this entire passage I just read to you was 100% only written to Christians and that Paul wasn't thinking of a single non-Christian when he wrote it. You say, how can you prove that? Well, I got two points. The second one is better than the first, but I'll start with the with this first one. Appearance of godliness, okay? Unbelievers don't have appearance of godliness, okay? Second reason is even better than that. I want to show you that Paul is 100% talking only about Christians and two Christians here. He says, avoid such people. Paul would never tell Christians to avoid non-Christians who are sinful. If we had to do that, we would have to avoid everybody. How would anybody ever get saved if the church had to avoid all the sinful people who weren't saved? We wouldn't be able to do the Great Commission. 
He would never tell us to avoid ungodly people who are sinful. Some of you, I know you're still doubtful, okay? Let me prove it to you first. Not first. Second. Yeah, I messed up here. First Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. Oh, 11 o'clock. I'm tired. All right, here we go. First Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. I want to prove to you that when he says avoid such people, he can only be talking about Christians. Therefore, proving that that entire passage in 2 Timothy is only written to Christians and about Christians. First Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. So he had written this in a letter to the Corinthians before. And so they had just said, well, then we're not going to associate with anyone who indulges in sexual sin. And that was a big problem in the Roman Empire when everyone indulged in sexual sin. And so I don't know what they did, but they were basically holed up in their basements. So Paul writes the next verse. He says, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you were not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. Now, some of you right away are mad. Chris is telling us not to associate with Christians to do these things. No, no, Chris is not telling you that. Paul is telling you that. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm just, I'm just reading it to you, Okay. Now, there's a whole message. We could preach a whole message about that, all right? So I'm not going to go into the details, all right? But I know a few of you are going to have questions. If I have questions already. Um, it, it's not saying, you know, a, a, some, because we all have struggles. It's not saying anyone who has a struggle because we're all struggling and we're trying to deal with stuff. And it's not talking about people who are on the fringes of the church and we're trying to bring in. No, 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 no. It's talking about people who are in positions where they should know better and people look to them as godly people. And if they are blatantly uh, persisting in sin and apathy like that, it, if everybody keeps go- being around them, it, gives, it makes everybody else think that that kind of a lifestyle is okay. Okay? But anyway, I only went there because I wanted to prove to you that Second Timothy was about that. So we go back there now. He's only talking to Christians here. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than God. And he says they have the appearance of godliness, but not its power. This is what I've been talking about the whole time, that Jesus came to save us from the cause, not the effect. We get saved from the effect when we get saved from the cause. But having a Christian label doesn't save you. It's having Christian life that saves you. It's having Christian life that saves you. Now, this is where I want to, that's the first point of this message. I want to do the sandwich part here, and then at the end we'll get to that very important point. But when it happens. But let's look at this middle part now. Some of you might be sitting here, and I need to give you some practical stuff, because out of this series, we've been talking a lot about grace and false grace and all sorts of stuff. And some of you are sitting there right now, and you're going, well, I've been saved for 30 years. I've been saved for 20 years. I don't feel the power. I, I know that I'm still walking a lot in the old self. So what do I do, Chris? How, how I, I actually, I'm looking here, I'm sitting here, I'm looking at these lists, and I'm going, oh, I want to be new creation, but how do I get there when I've been old creation for so long, thinking of myself as, as saved? How do I get real power to become really new? And so I just, I just want to give you three biblical steps, okay? First step is this. There's a whole reason why I'm preaching this series is this first step. Recognize the, very, the, the first thing you have to do before anything else can happen in your life. You just have to recognize something. You and I need to recognize that salvation without new creation is a contradiction, we, we, have to, we have these scales on our eyes. We have this crust that's built up over the North American church that makes us think we can be saved while we're still in the old life. That's an oxymoron. If you haven't been saved from sin, you haven't been saved because that's what Jesus came to save us from. 
And so the first thing I want to do is there's this, this scab that is built up over our eyes, our spiritual eyes. We can't even see it. And in this message series, I've been going after that scab and going after that scab. I want to rip it off. I want us to finally see that being saved and being apathetic and full of the world and full of sin is a contradiction. Then you haven't been saved from anything. And the reason that is so important is because the moment you get that actual realization, like you don't just think it in your head, but in your heart you go, oh, that's what salvation is. When that happens, you're going to move immediately to step two, which is repentance, or which is confession, repentance. You know, if the church, if, if the church of North America would swallow this bitter pill, if the church of North America would cut off the false doctrines that allow us to think we're safe from hell when we're not safe from sin, that make us cozy in our worldliness, if we would swallow the bitter pill and realize that the Bible says you've got to be saved from your sin in order to be saved from hell, if we would swallow that bitter pill, I'll tell you three things would happen in the Christian church here in North America. First of all, you would have a massive wave of repentance. Because that's what happens. When you recognize that you're supposed to be a new person, you're here in the old life and you look over there, that's the new creation. Here's the gap. And now you start confessing and repenting that gap. Lord Jesus, help me. I'm not even close to that. Help me. And you're humbling yourself before God and pursuing him. I'm sorry. When you see that it's not okay to be here, that you were saved to be there. In fact, that's what it means to be saved. And when mass repentance happens, then another thing happens, and this is, you can follow this right throughout history. You can study every, every revival that's ever happened. You get a mass wave of repentance to the church, and then something always follows a mass wave of repentance, and that is a massive rise of personal holiness. I mean, George Barna has done the studies, and Christian life right now, the world is laughing at us because we really are almost no different in their eyes. And what happens is when the church gets on its knees and feels bad and has remorse and says, we have got to be new creations, and now the Holy Spirit comes in with grace, there's a rise of personal holiness, and people go out into the workplace, and they stop swearing and cussing, and they stop taking advantage of people, and they start letting people take advantage of them rather than taking them to court. And spreading a bad name. And they, just, and they start doing good in a home. And they start being kind when people are harsh. And there's this rise of personal holiness. And if you look through history, every time there's been a wave of repentance and a rise of, of corresponding holiness in the church, every time revival follows. And you get power and you get miracles and you get many, many salvations because God just wants to be close to a body like that. That's what happens. And so I'm passionate to see the church recognize that salvation without new creation is a contradiction. Of course, and the second thing, like I said, is then you're going to move to confess your sins and repent regularly because it's a lifestyle. You're over here, you, you, you've been saved for 30 years, you're saved, but you're still, you're no different than you would be if you hadn't gotten saved. And suddenly your eyes are open. Whoa, I am not saved from anything. And now you turn and you see where God wants to bring you and you start to confess and repent and it's a regular part of your life because none of us will be perfect until Jesus comes back. And when you see how serious sin is and how wonderful being a new creation is, confession and repentance become like your best friends. And you just, oh, confession and repentance. Lord, oh, I'm so glad to say sorry and humble myself before you today. So many passages of scripture on this. 1 John 1, 8 to 9, our encounter retreats are sitting on a solid foundation of many passages like this. But this is one of our favorite. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, right? So we all sin. None of us is perfect. If, there's if again. If series coming, right? If 
if we confess our sins. See, we just want to skip ahead. We just want to skip ahead and say he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It doesn't say that. If we confess our sins, we, John is including himself in this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an amazing promise. You don't have to be perfect to be saved. All you have to do is open your eyes and go, whoa, I need to be saved from this. I'm sorry, Lord, and you humble yourself. And right away, Jesus has a big smile on his face and he says, I'm so glad you said sorry and asked for help. I'm on your side. And he's pouring grace into your life, helping you to overcome, making you a new creation. Now, I think sometimes people might think that we here at Southland are, uh, are miserable because we're confessing all the time. I, I think there might, there might be that out there somewhere. I mean, you might be new here today, and you might have come in here thinking that. Because, I mean, we have encounter retreats. We send thousands of people on re- encounter retreats, and we keep sending people back. People go once, twice, three times. They just keep going. And every time we have a prayer summit, anybody of you who's been to a prayer summit, and if you haven't, you need to just start coming. Because what is, what is God ever going to do in this nation if we don't pray? They pray in China. They pray in Africa. This is a rabbit trail. I should stop. (laughs) Oh, we don't pray in Canada. Why is that? Well, we have stuff to do. Well, okay. That's why God has stuff to do too, and he's not doing much here. Anyway, where was I? Um, Yeah, so they think we're miserable. Because at prayer summits, we confess. And then we go to cell, and pretty much every cell meeting, we're confessing. And we tell people, confess in your... And then you guys must be miserable. You're always confessing. We over here with the cheap grace, we don't need to confess, so we're happy. And I think it's the only way you can say that confession and repentance makes people miserable is if you've never tried it. I mean, I use it too, okay? I, I'm not going to stop telling people. If, if any of you ask me after the service, when did you get saved? I'll say, I got saved when I was five, on my parents' bed, after which my dad sang to me, ships ahoy, which is kind of weird. Those of you who are older, you know that song, Acapella. I don't know what that did for me. Probably wasn't good. But anyway, I got saved, right? So I'm not talking about, I'm not throwing out the terminology. I'm not saying we're bad for using the terminology. Not at all. I'm going to keep using it too. It's just so ingrained in there now. Let's just, keep, let's just keep going with it. But what I am against is that we bought hook, line, and sinker into it. And that's the only way we think of salvation is we think of it as something that happened and is finished way back there. And what I want to tell you is that that is nowhere in the Bible. If you actually read in the Bible, you will find that salvation is something that started in the past, is continuing in the present, and will be completed someday if you endure to the end. That's salvation in the Bible. So let me just show, I'm going to finish this message with about a dozen passages. We're going to fly through these, some of them like bullets, okay? And I want to drop, the first bomb I want to drop on you is that no one in the New Testament ever talked about their, their salvation in the way we do of, I got saved in the past. This is real important because, again, as long as we think of it as something in the past, that makes a big difference in how we live. It makes a real big difference in how we live. When we think of salvation as a test I passed, I've got the diploma, it's over. So how did the New Testament writers speak about their, about their salvation? They talked about it being an ongoing process. Let me throw you, show you three examples. There's many in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are what? Being saved is the power of God. Now, if you have a King James Version here today, and you open it up, you might look up there, uh, you might look up this verse, and it will say, to those who are saved, and you'll go, oh, Chris, you're just using a bad translation. Well, first of all, the ESV translation is a better translation than the the King James Version, which I hate to break it to some of you, but it's not a great, accurate translation, the King James. King James, okay? Um, But second of all, if you actually just go to the original Greek, 
you will find that the word for saved there is sozo, it's, uh, it, and it is in the present tense. That means it's ongoing and continuous. And so all the most accurate translations, you look at the NASB, the NASB, which is the most accurate English word-for-word translation, it's being saved there too. This is in the Greek, it is being saved. I don't know what they were doing with the King James Version there. But anyway, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, none of us in North America would ever write a verse like this. We, we, don't, we don't even know what to do with this. In fact, most of us have never noticed this before because like I said before, we read, we read what we believe instead of believing what we read. But we look at this verse, we would have written this verse, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are saved. To those of us who are saved is the power of God. That's not what Paul said. He said to those of us who are being saved. Paul, and he included himself in this, he says us. So Paul did not consider his salvation or anybody else's to be completed yet. It's not something I got saved. He says I'm being saved right now. That makes a pretty big difference, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If, there's an if. If. See, if salvation is something done in the past, there's no more if. There's no more if. I got saved. There's no more if. It's done. It's over. And Paul has it. Paul and all the writers of the gospels, and you'll see Jesus in just a few minutes too, They all had a big if in their theology about salvation because if you're being saved and it's not done yet, then there's an if. And what's the if? If you hold fast. If you keep holding on to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. And this verse right here encapsulates why I am so passionate about this message that salvation is not something that happened to you in the past. It's not one minute of your life. It's the journey. Salvation is not something that happened for one minute while you prayed a prayer somewhere years ago. It's the journey you got on. You're still on it. And because we've gotten this idea that it's done, it's over, it's finished, we've taken out the if. And so here in North America, you will feel, hear very little preaching, teaching, or thinking that talks about holding fast and enduring to the end. And yet, if you read the New Testament with open eyes, you will find that one of the most common and the most important messages that infuses everything in the New Testament is hold on, overcome, endure to the end, and hold fast. But we've lost that message because we think of salvation as it's done. And so we've lost one of the most important pieces of the, of the New Testament. Hold on to the end. Salvation is not a test that you've passed. It's a journey. You want to, want to know something real interesting? You want to know what they called Christianity before it was called Christianity? The, the first name for Christianity, before Christians were Christians and Christianity was Christianity, the first name that the early Christians called Christianity, you want to, you want to know what they called it? The way. Isn't that beautiful? It just encapsulates the idea that salvation is a journey. You got onto a path. It wasn't one minute of your life. It was a path you got onto and you're following that path. And so they called it the way. If you read in the book of Acts, you will find Christianity called the way more times than Christianity. 
Christianity pops up first time in Acts chapter 11. And I think it only pops up once or twice in the entire book. But five times throughout Acts, before Acts 11, and then all throughout the book, you will find the way. Let me just read you a couple of examples. Acts chapter 9, 1 to 2. But Saul, this is when he was Paul, he was still a bad guy. Okay, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way. On the way. I'm on the way. I'm on the journey. That's what they called it. I love that. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 24, 14 to 15. But this I, that's Paul, confess to you, that according to the way, which they, that's the Jewish leaders, call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Salvation is not something you did, it's something you are doing. And this is really, really important, and now we're just hitting right the very crux of this issue. See, what I find, what, the reason I think I got saved is so dangerous, if we don't understand what we're really saying, is because what has happened in North American Christianity is we're obsessed with the start instead of the finish. We're obsessed. You go to crusades, they're always trying to get people to start. No one talks about finishing. But if you look in the New Testament, they talk way more about finishing than starting. And when you stand before Jesus, and this is why this message is so absolutely vitally important, when you stand before Jesus, it's not how, when or how you started that matters to him, it's where and how you finished. If Christianity is a way, if it's a path, it's where you end up that matters, not, not when or where you started. And there are, so many, there are so many scripture passages about this. We don't have nearly enough time. I'm going to tie one hand behind my back and I'm going to leave out all the Bible except for just Jesus. Okay? Now he's the son of God. He knows what he's talking about. All right? So let's read with open eyes and let's read what Jesus talks about. Is it starting or is it finishing? Matthew 10, 21 to 22. Brother will deliver, deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew chapter 10. The one who endures to the end. Not the one who starts. If language means anything then Jesus is teaching in this passage, as the Bible does in many places, that there will be people who start. Remember the parable of the four soils and stuff gets choked out. There's only one in the end that bears fruit. There will be many who don't endure to the end. They won't be saved. It's only the one who endures to the end who is saved. This is the entire message of the New Testament. Endure to the end. Endure to the end. Endure to the end. Matthew 24, 13. Totally different message. This is an end times message now. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I love that Jesus repeats himself because I repeat myself all the time, so it makes me feel good. Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. If Jesus says something once, we should all listen. Amen? We're going to stand before him someday. We're going to be accountable for the things he said. If he says something once, we should all listen. If he says something over and over and over and over again through the New Testament, we should really be concentrating. Let me show you some more. Let's go to Revelation. This is still Jesus talking. This is Jesus talking to the churches. It's in red letters in your Bible. 
Revelation 3 verse 5. Are we listening? He who overcomes. Not he who starts. Not he who prayed a prayer and then when things got tough, he went off. He who overcomes. In other words, you're on the way, but there it's not. The way isn't always easy. Jesus said the path is narrow and only a few will find it. And there will be temptations trying to pull you off. And there will be hurts and woundedness and frustration. All of them trying to pull you off the way. But he who overcomes to the end, he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Again, if language means anything, can you, are you on the right one? Can you go back one there, Egan? There it is. If language means anything, there are going to be people with their names blotted out of the book of life. They will start, but they won't finish. Only he who overcomes to the end never blotted out of the book of life. Next one, Revelation. We'll just keep going. This is Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. Revelation 2 verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? To him who overcomes comes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2 verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What's the second death? Scripture always interprets Scripture. In Revelation 20 verse 6, he explains what the second death is. It's being judged to hell. In this passage, Jesus says that he who overcomes to the end is the one who is saved from hell. It's how you finish, not how you start. Now, of course, I know that some of you right now will be worried right away with this, with this message. Well, will I persevere to the end? Right? That's the question. Will I persevere to the end? The first thing I want to say to you is, I can't tell you that. That's your choice. Nobody else can pull you off the path. No one can push you off. You can't fall off. The only, but it's up to your choice whether or not you stay on. And I won't assuage people's fear. People, I will not tell people empty words to give them a false sense of security about their salvation by giving them a false doctrine about it. If you want assurance of salvation, this is what you have to do. Have a relationship with Jesus. Everybody I know here on staff, and they have, we have a relationship with Jesus. Nobody's afraid of hell. I'm not afraid of hell. I'm not afraid of dying right now. And the reason is, and I've shared the story many times, because when I was nine years old, I was afraid. And my dad didn't give me empty words to make me feel better. He made me go back to Jesus. And I had to seek after him. And it took me like a month until the Holy Spirit spoke in my heart and said, ah, now there's assurance. I got it from him, not somebody else. That's what Romans 8 says. Look up Romans verse 8. The Holy Spirit speaks in our hearts and cries, Abba, Father. Don't change doctrines until you feel good. This is what you do. You go home and you get on your knees and you begin to pursue Jesus and say, I'm afraid. I want to know that I'm your kid. And when you hear it from him, that's real assurance that means something. It's real assurance that means something. Let me encourage you with something else too. God is on your side. He's not trying to push you off the path. He's not trying to trick you off the path. He's at the end of your path. He knows how long your life will be. And he's saying, I'm on your side. I want you to stay on the path. And as long as you say yes to him, he will give you more grace than you know how to handle to keep you on it. He's on your side. It's not complicated to stay on the path. 
It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Here's what it means. I have a yes in my spirit to Jesus. It might be a weak yes. It might be an immature yes. But somewhere deep in your heart of hearts, you honestly want to please him. If you have that yes, he will give you all the grace you need to be on a path right to the end. But you're going to have to walk with him. I finished the message with this last passage, Jude 1, 24 to 25. Now to him who is able, notice able, not, not he will. He won't do it against your, your will. To him who is able, if you want him to. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Ushers, you can come forward. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I want to pray that every person here today is going to persevere to the end. I pray for a huge dose of hope combined with a spirit of repentance. Repentance and remorse for our sins, Lord, and hope that as we repent and turn to you, you will keep us on the way by your grace. Lord Jesus, I pray that here at Southland we would actually see a difference. It would be known in this community. People would know our business people and our employees and our farmers and our politicians and everyone in this church that they would know these people are actually really different. You can see it. They have actually been really saved. They're new. Lord, I pray that that would be able to be said of us and that we would not have to shrink back from you at your coming. In your name I pray, amen.